Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin, remembering the Riley's raid on Dieppe. A very interesting court case is playing out in Ottawa. Is COVID making a comeback? Finding King Henry VIII, belt tightening on Parliament Hill, and let's go to the X. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, you won't want to miss it tomorrow because tomorrow is the 81st anniversary of the Second World War raid on Dieppe. And the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry were smack dab in the middle of that battle. Tim Fletcher is a retired captain with the Rileys and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Captain Fletcher, good morning. How are you today? Well, good morning to you. I'm well. The raid on Dieppe was such a pivotal and important battle. Um, What should people remember about this, especially our younger listeners who may not necessarily know what happened? There's two things that should be remembered. One is the incredible valor shown by the soldiers of the RHLI and the many other units taking part uh, in the face of incredible adversity. They fought their best until they could fight no more. Uh, and although a lot surrendered, um, a lot more came back uh, to continue uh, the war when the actual invasion took place. The second thing to remember is that it was a painful way to relearn lessons that the Allies should have known regarding uh, a foreign invasion. The You don't try to attack a fortified port. That led to a decision for the Normandy invasion coming across uh, less defended beaches, which ultimately led to the winning of the war. So it was a, it was a very pivotal but very bloody battle. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a strategy that ultimately failed in terms of you know, the X's and O's of warfare, but really set the stage, as you said, for what happened on D-Day, which really turned the war on its head. Um, as part of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, how were the Rileys involved in this key battle? The Rileys were part of uh, the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division, uh, which uh, sent the bulk of the fighting forces to Dieppe, and uh, along with the Essex Scottish, uh, the Royal Regiment of Canada, some British commandos, the South Saskatchewan Regiment, and others that stormed ashore. Um, more than uh, more than a thousand Allied soldiers, sailors, and aircrew died that day, and 197 of them were from the RHLI. It was said at the time that not a family in Hamilton um, didn't know someone who died that day. The the uh, the battle did set up some lessons to be learned. Uh, including that of overwhelming force being required. The main thing it did was reduce the pressure on the Russians because the Germans had to transfer more soldiers back to France, back to Europe, away from Russia, allowing the Russians to continue the fight. If the Russian front had collapsed, uh, the Allies could have lost that war. The Dieppe raid has to be viewed in that light, as a success, Mm -hmm. although it was a tactical failure. 
Captain uh, Tim Fletcher, retired Captain Tim Fletcher from the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, uh, informing us about the 81st anniversary of the Second World War raid on Dieppe, in which 197 soldiers with the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry were killed in that battle. Tomorrow, the commemoration service will be held. Uh, what are some of the details you can share with us today? The the service will be our standard service. It starts at 11 at uh, Dieppe Veterans Memorial Park along Beach Boulevard, closer to the Lip Bridge. So follow just Beach Boulevard down until you get almost to the Lip Bridge and you'll see the Dieppe Park. It gets underway at 11. There will be uh, a short service and wreath laying, uh, the sounding of uh, the last post and rouse uh, in commemoration of our fallen. And um, it's about a half hour, 40 minute service. It's definitely open to the public, and we'd love to see members of the public there paying their respects. It's not a commemoration of war, and not even so much a commemoration of the battle, but paying tribute to the soldiers who gave their all that day in defense of others. It was a uh, key battle, and uh, as you said, not a tactical victory, but certainly that set the stage for what happened later on and, and led to an Allied victory. Uh, Captain Fletcher, really appreciate your time today. Uh, let's hope that uh, many citizens will come out to uh, tomorrow's service. We're looking forward to seeing them. That is Captain Tim Fletcher from the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. Again, that commemoration service takes place tomorrow morning. It begins at 11 o'clock at Dieppe Veterans Memorial Park on Beach Boulevard. And of note, the last known RHLID veteran, Ken Curry, passed away in 2020, but several family members of Dieppe veterans will be attending the service, uh, including Reg and Kathy Harding. Kathy's uncle, George Kerslake, was killed at Dieppe. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a court case that uh, recently went down in Ottawa earlier this year, and it it has sparked some debate about whether secretly recording an intimate encounter that was consensual amounts to sexual assault. So long story short, a, a judge ruled that secretly filming and sharing footage of consensual sex constitutes a sexual assault and sentenced a man in this case to seven years in prison, less time served, after he was found guilty of sexually assaulting two women. And it has sparked a debate over how courts are viewing consent in cases involving technology. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer, a legal expert, a media commentator, and joins us now on GMH. Ari, welcome back to the show. How are you? Great to be with you. So there's no debate in this case that the sexual encounter between these individuals was consensual, but what was not consensual was the recording and then the sharing of their sexual activity. The question I have is, do you think this amounts to sexual assault, or should this have been perhaps sexual exploitation? Give us your thoughts on that. So I think both are compelling arguments for lawyers, but I'll give you my personal view with a mix of my criminal lawyer background in it. I actually think this is sexual assault. I don't believe their consent was really consensual at all in any way, shape, or form when they didn't know that this man was going to upload the videos of them fornicating, it's early in the morning, I don't want to use any other language, <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, to Pornhub for 9,000 plus people 
to view in certain ways that, again, that, you know, close to nine in the morning, I'm going to leave to the imagination. The idea that they would have given consent to the acts that were recorded if they knew what his motivation was, to me, makes no sense. And it's a very murky area of the law. It's clear as mud. There are some other charges in the criminal code that the Crown could have charged, non-consensual sharing of images, uh, a number of other things. And one of the areas that a defense lawyer like me will say, well, look, if you say that the consent was based on fraud, and I do say that it is, and to me, I'll get to why I actually think it is sexual assault in a moment for another reason, is when you have a situation of fraud, a lot of people, your listeners might say, well, look, what about a rich guy taking a lady to dinner and saying, I'm single and I'm going to put you up if you agree to do X-rated things with me. And it turns out he's married hmm. and he never calls her back. Isn't that fraud? Yes, that is one of the slippery slopes of our criminal code in this area of the law, which is as clear as mud. We don't have enough time today, by the way, Rick, to get into why this area of the law is so clear as mud yeah but i've often said look what if you agree to sleep with somebody you ask them if they have an std and they say no they don't but they know they do and you end up getting it same thing is yeah. your is your consent to that activity not based on a lie or fraudulent claim here's the last part of my answer which is the criminal law also looks at bodily harm from sexual assault and usually it's based on physical bodily harm is there a concussion? Was somebody scraped or bruised up? Was there other kind of damage that, again, in the nine o'clock hour, I'm going to be delicate about? Hmm. Well, if you, Rick, have a listener or a friend, a sister, a mother, a cousin who was this person and they ended up all over Pornhub with thousands of people doing it, that's psychological harm that, in my view, is even worse than potentially a scrape, a bruise or a concussion. It's never ending. It's horrible and it's deeply psychological. So that's my answer as to why I think this is interesting and worthy of discussion. We got about a minute left. Is this going to be a precedent setting ruling when it comes to that psychological harm? I think it probably will, even though the courts have moved in that direction to recognize psychological harm, particularly in this area of the criminal code. Now, there have been some terrible decisions, I think, in this area with regard to condom use. Uh, certain decisions in, in terms of HIV AIDS. I wouldn't be surprised if this went to the Supreme Court for clarification because it is that interesting and unique. But this is, I think, based on sound legal principles. And I understand completely what the judge did. There's no way this young lady would have entered into this act in a million years if she thought she was being recorded and was going to end up on Pornhub. And that, to me, makes it highly criminal. Yep, I wholeheartedly agree. Ari, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time and insight into this. Thanks, Rick. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert, and media commentator. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I know, I can already feel you rolling your eyes as we dive into another discussion about COVID-19. But this is just consider this an educational piece because this is data from the Public Health Agency of Canada who are studying COVID-19 activity rates, and they're seeing, or they're at least projecting, an increase in activity, in infections, as we get a little closer to the school year. So I thought, 
it, I, I have to do this for you, the listener, to keep you educated and informed and talk to the experts on how they feel this thing will or will not play out. And one of those experts is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the U of T. One of the faces, one of the voices of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Dr. Bogosh, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm, I'm good, Rick. Thanks. I love the uh, build up to this. Nobody <laughs> wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to hear about it. Yes. But we're going to do it anyways. I think that's, uh, that's hilarious, but it's also it's also very true, right? I mean, we all think we're done with this and it's over, but it's, it's a good call. I think it's just important that people can make informed decisions for themselves. That, that's what it's all about. This is a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. And in this case, uh, the medicine is, uh, well, the, the, the disease or the virus is the COVID-19 pandemic, but... When we're looking at increased activity, is this at a worrisome level? How should we react to this? So there's patterns to this, right? We've dealt with this every fall for the last few years, including this fall as well. You know, you don't need a crystal ball to predict that cases are going to go up as we exit the summer and enter the fall season. It's going to happen just like it happened last year and the year before that. Okay, so you know, it's important that people uh, are aware of that. And, you know, for some people, they'll just shrug their shoulders and say, okay, good to know, moving on with my life. Other people might say, you know what, I, I'm going to put a mask on in an indoor setting to maybe reduce my risk of getting COVID in certain situations. Or, hey, uh, you know, there's a booster vaccine coming around in the fall, and uh, I'm at greater risk for severe infection, I'm, I'm going to get uh, I'm going to get that booster shot. So I think it is important that people recognize it, it's not gone away. Uh, still around, uh, always has been around uh, since uh, in Canada about March of 2020, and it's going to wax and wane and wax and wane for the foreseeable future. So this uh, latest strain is still an Omicron subvariant. Is that correct? It is. It is, and I, you know, I, I, kudos to people who are interested in learning the names and bunch of numbers behind it. But yeah, at a very general level, it's under, all under that Omicron umbrella, and we've been in the Omicron era now what, for about a year and a half, just over. Uh, we started seeing Omicron in December 2021 and uh, in, the, in the winter of 2022. And the first Omicron wave was really nasty. It was really uh, significant. Tons and tons of people got the infection. Hospitals were really stressed. But subsequent waves since that, uh, it's still been impactful, but not nearly as impactful as earlier waves in the pandemic. And I think if people are trying to think about, like, what's this going to look like? Just imagine what COVID looked like over the last year and a half. It's still been around. We still have some pressure on the healthcare system, but it's nothing remotely close to what we saw in the earlier waves of the pandemic, where you know the healthcare system was completely overwhelmed with patients suffering from COVID-19, where you know your ICU beds were completely full in the province. Like, that, like we're, we're not going to see scenes like that with this with this particular variant that's circulating now. We're really a long way away from Delta. I mean, a long way away. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you, you'll talk to a million different people in healthcare and get a million different opinions. I, I mean, not nice to think about, but i got to say, a, a pandemic with many low points, the lowest of the low for me was in spring of 2021, which is actually our alpha wave. And it was just horrific. Vaccines were just starting to roll out and we had vaccinated our long-term care facilities, but we just got pummeled with that wave. And that's actually the wave in, in Ontario, at least, where... Our healthcare system was 
was just demolished. It was just flattened. And we were, you know, people would look up in the sky and you'd see helicopters overhead flying people from one ICU to another where there'd be space often hundreds of kilometers away. It was just awful. We're a long way from that. Thank God. Yeah, thank goodness. Uh, our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, as we talk about the uh, newest data from the Public Health Agency of Canada that is showing that COVID-19 activity is increasing as we draw closer to the start of the school year. Should parents at all consider a back-to-school booster, or is this should only be done in certain circumstances? Well, in all fairness, I'm waiting to hear from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. They're sort of, they've got their hands on the pulse in terms of what boosters are, are coming out. In general, they uh, they did suggest in the summer that a booster vaccine campaign is going to be around in the fall. And they really stressed that people who should come out and get it are people who are at greatest risk for severe infection. They really itemized them. For example, anyone who lives in a long-term care facility or a nursing home, uh, people who are on the older end of the spectrum and people with underlying medical conditions, like immunocompromised states, and there's a list of underlying medical conditions that put them at greater risk for severe infection. If you want to know where, you know, these are people who are sadly overrepresented in hospitals. These are people who are sadly uh, overrepresented in, uh, in, in, in those who succumb to the illness. And, and the vaccine will provide, uh, we know it now, it provides pretty good protection against severe infection. It doesn't protect us nearly as well as it used to from getting the infection but it does protect against more severe manifestations of the virus. And those are the cohorts that are having are overrepresented in, in uh, all the data from all over the world, not just in Canada, in terms of who has more severe manifestations of the virus. Well, we've got about 45 seconds. Omicron, as you mentioned, really erupted in December of 2021. It's, I think, the longest variant in terms of you know timeline. Oh, yeah. is, is that telling at all? Yeah, great point. And, you know, under the Omicron umbrella, we've had several different... Omicron waves, you had BA1, BA2, BA4, BA5, XBB, now it's EG5, okay, and on and on and on. And each subsequent wave we've had has been less and less impactful uh, at a societal level, at a healthcare system level. I'm not saying people don't get sick. Sadly, some people get sick. Sadly, some people end in hospital. Sadly, some people die. COVID is not gone. We have to acknowledge that. It's just not nearly the same burden on Canada and the world as it once was early in the pandemic. And, and that's all been in the Omicron era. That's a great point. Dr. Bogosh, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, uh, staff physician at U of T and infectious disease specialist who has been uh, one of the faces, one of the voices of the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, a professor from Carleton University made a remarkable discovery while studying religious writings in England. Now, these writings date back to the 1500s. It's like 500 years ago. And our first guest on Good Morning Hamilton today found something scribbled on the paper that was written by, well, one of the most famous members of the British royal family. Micheline White is an associate professor in the College of the Humanities and the Department of English at Carleton University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Micheline, good morning. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. So before you spill the beans on what exactly you discovered, what were you studying? So I have been working for a couple of years on the writings produced by Catherine Parr, who's Henry's last, sixth and final wife. And remarkably, she was an author, which distinguishes her a bit from Henry's other wives and is quite unusual for the time period. So she wrote three different prayer books that were all published and were very popular. 
And um, for several years, I've been studying them, trying to figure out how they related to the religious policies of the time. And I had learned that there were some special gift copies of one of her books. So this is sort of unusual, but in the Renaissance period, sometimes authors commissioned really fancy copies of their books to give to their friends as gifts. And so I learned that there was this copy in the Wormsley Library, and I was in the UK on sabbatical, and I was trying to look at every copy of Parr's books that I could find. <laughs> and they agreed that I could go look at it. And um, uh, I was actually just about to leave. I'd been looking at it for a while, and I decided that I should really flip through every page before I left, since I'd come all this way. And... Um, I just, uh, as I was flipping through, I saw some little markings in the margins. So that's that's how I found them, was I was actually going to look at Catherine Parr's books. So these markings in the margins are of what and who actually placed them there? Right, so there are two kinds of markings. Um, and one of them is called a manicule. And that just means a little hand with a pointed finger. We sometimes see those today on, on signs and posters around. Once you start looking for them, you notice them everywhere. Um, but they're called manicules. And today people don't draw little hands in the margins of their books. But in the Renaissance, that was a very common way that people annotated their books. There's a second kind of marking also in this book, which is um, it's three little dots and a squiggle. Um, sort of like if people today draw a little asterisks or a check mark in the margins of their books. And uh, as soon as I saw this really faint pencil manicule in the margin of this book, I became like speechless because I had been looking the day before at some manicules that Henry, Henry VIII had made in a different book at the British Library. So I was very familiar with Henry's annotations because I was already studying them because, um, you know, because I'm interested in Parr's religious ideas. So I wanted to know what Henry's religious ideas were. Hmm. So, yeah, as soon as I saw these manicules, I thought these look a lot like Henry's, which would just be amazing. Yeah. And and so how was it proven that, that the, the the these annotations were actually done by King Henry VIII himself? Yeah, so that that was the challenge, right? My gut instinct told me that they looked a lot like Henry's annotations, but of course I would need to prove that. So I spent several years on this and I was always willing to, um, of course, you know, accept if they weren't Henry's. But um, so what I did was I compared, I had many photographs taken. And so I compared each of the markings in the Wormsley Library book and there are 14 of them. So I, I took hundreds of photos of other manicules that Henry drew in other books that everyone acknowledges are his. For example, there's some books that he actually signed and that have these little hands in them. And um, what I discovered were there were really, there were I, um, there are four things that, that convinced me that the ones in the Wormsley book were Henry. So the size is identical, the shape of the hand is identical, the angle that they're placed on the page is identical, so in the right margin, his manicules always point downwards at 30 degrees. When he draws one in the left margin, they always point up at 40 degrees. And then there's a little, you know, where your wrist is. Henry always drew this little thing that looked like a shirt cuff, like a cuff at the wrist as if he was wearing a, a, a shirt. Mm -hmm. and, they're, and they're very distinctive in Henry's manicules and they're identical in the Wormsley Library copy. So the evidence is overwhelming 
that the that they were made by Henry. And this research was peer reviewed in a in an academic journal by other experts and and they agreed with me. So very cool. So after a lot of study, I was I was very confident in making this attribution. How was this never found before? I mean, these things have been there for 500 years. I know. It's amazing. Um, this book, after Henry VIII's death, it would appear that it passed to one family and stayed in that family for hundreds of years. And so it was not a book that was in a university library or it was not in the British library. So it was, in other words, it's in a library that is... Um, was well it was in a private owner's hands and so it was relatively inaccessible and it's only been been owned twice um since that original owner so i was just very lucky that i decided to go look at this copy i don't think anyone had really looked at every page before and so so that's that's why i was able to find this new data in our last minute together what what do you think the significance of your discovery is well, there are a couple of things. So first of all, it sort of gives us a snapshot into Henry's thoughts at the end of his life. And the markings are pretty bleak in some ways. There are a lot of, he put annotations be beside passages where he's thinking about physical suffering, which we know he was very ill at the end of his life. He had an ulcer on his leg. And, and in the passages, he's clearly worried that God is punishing him for his sins and he's asking God to heal him. The other sort of bleak passages are, or annotations are beside passages about wisdom and ignorance, where the speaker is worried that he strayed from the correct path, that God is angry with him for not being wise enough, and he's asking God to send him wisdom. And if we think, you know, what this suggests is that, you know, although Henry was often very confident and arrogant and ruthless and, and very you know, confident in his decisions, we see that at least some some moments he was plagued by doubts that he'd been a bad ruler, that he'd made decisions that were maybe not wise. And I would say maybe he's worried that, you know, the, the realm might descend into chaos after he died because his son is only nine and his council, was, they were all fighting with each other. And so um, I think it shows us something just interesting and unknown about Henry's state of mind at the end of his death. Absolutely. Phenomenal discovery. Congratulations for finding it. And uh, thanks for sharing the story with us this morning. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Micheline White is an associate professor in the College of the Humanities and the Department of English at Carleton University. Yeah, what a find. King Henry VIII, by the way, ruled from 1509 until his death in 1547. And... Well, he's probably best known, well, for, for a number of things, but beheading two of his six wives, uh, his second wife, Anne Boleyn, and his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. He divorced two others, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, uh, in which he tried to annul that marriage, and his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. His third wife, Jane Seymour, died shortly after childbirth, and his sixth and last wife, Catherine Parr, that uh, Micheline alluded to, outlived the king and her writings. Uh, pave the way for, well, this discovery today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, Treasury Board President and Liberal MP Anita Anand, the former defense minister, uh, well, now in charge of the purse strings for the federal government, has told her fellow ministers, listen, you got to find $15 billion in spending cuts by October the 2nd. And so one of the questions I have is, is this government actually starting to get serious about its budget commitments or its spending commitments? We're all we're all tightening our belt a little bit tighter these days. 
with the cost of living and inflation and interest rates going in, in the direction we don't want it to go. Is the government now realizing, well, yeah, we, we should kind of cut here as well. Peter Grafe is a professor of political science at McMaster University and is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton. Peter, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, thanks. So the government is finally doing some belt tightening in, in this specific way in terms of its spending commitments, including those to crown corporations. What do you make of this? Well, I mean, I think uh, it's something we've seen regularly, uh, you know, over at least the past, you know, 25, 30 years, but probably goes back further. Uh, Obviously, when uh, an organization spends, it can continue spending on things that aren't necessarily that important anymore. And so you need ongoing processes of uh, of review of that organization's spending and a government is really no different. Uh, You know, this most recent round was announced uh, in the last federal budget, but I can think of similar, you know, processes going back through the Harper, Martin and Chrétien governments, uh, you know, and in fact, you could go back to to, to Pierre Trudeau coming back from a bond summit in the mid-late 70s and, and making a similar claim about the need to cut. So I think it's a pretty, uh, pretty normal process. Uh, and uh, I guess what's more interesting in this case is how high profile the government has decided to make it. So I think here they are doing a bit of theater to say that this, you know, normal process is a sign of uh, their attention to, you know, the spending of uh, our tax dollars. And so I think it is in that way, recognizing that the the Liberals are uh, a bit, uh, you know, in trouble in terms of the votes that they share with the Conservatives, people who might vote Conservative or Liberal, particularly around the Toronto area, and that they need to find a way to begin to court them back by by making it look like they're more uh, fiscally rigorous uh, than they may have seemed. The Public Service Alliance of Canada is speculating that this $15 billion in spending cuts is going to do one of two things, either cut some services that we rely on or cut the public uh, workforce, the public sector workforce. What are your thoughts on that and and which way they go or, or will they go in either of those directions? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're removing money from what the government does, something has to give. I mean, there's no there's no freebies here. I mean, ultimately, this year they're looking at about uh, 500 million that they're trying to cut because you know the 15 billion number is actually over five years, you know, and to to lead to kind of recurring about you know four billion dollars a year uh, savings. So that's not a huge amount, and you know, about a 200 billion dollar budget, but it you know can make a difference. Uh, you know, the government's view is that a bunch of people got hired during the pandemic uh, and that, you know, through attrition, you can probably find most of these savings simply going back to the size of government we had before. And and that's possible, although, you know, we have seen a number of difficulties where they were understaffed and unable to offer uh, services that Canadians expect. If we think, for instance, of issues at the passport office last summer. Peter Grafe is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Grafe is a professor of political science at McMaster University, and we're talking about $15 billion worth of spending cuts by October 2nd uh, by the uh, the federal government, at least that's the wish of Treasury Board President and Liberal MP Anita Anand. Now, a spokesperson for Minister Anand said that the government doesn't expect to cut any public service jobs and wants to refocus uh, underutilized funds on critical services such as healthcare, which is interesting because they're choosing healthcare over cost of living. And I know healthcare is always the number one issue, but cost of living has got to be one A in this or or one B in this regard. 
Yeah, I mean, again, this I think is more theater because you know once you have the money, you know, or you're not spending that money, and so you might want to reallocate it. Well, uh, then you could reallocate it to anything and could claim that it's going there in terms of those priorities. And so, yeah, it could be you could say it was going to healthcare. You could say, uh, you know, it was going to a military review. You know, in the sort of updating of of our military processes or procurement. You could say that it's going to cost of living. Uh, I mean, again, that's all really theater. I mean, you know, part of this process is about uh, deciding on priorities of where you're going to spend. Uh, But, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, the government spends on a lot of different things. And so you could claim that this is going to them. I mean, you could claim it's going to the new uh, dental care program, too, if you really wanted to. If this is political theater, as you suggest, how do the opposition parties attack it? Because if it's in the political theater, they're going to want to stomp on it and say, listen, this this government is a little misguided and is looking at the wrong thing. Is that the tack they're going to take? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of harder for the conservatives because ultimately they do feel that there should be less spending. So, uh, you know, the response to date has been, well, you can't trust them to actually find that money and save it. Um uh, you know, I don't know how much that's going to to resonate, but certainly, you know, in a context where the government has other things, new things that it's spending money on, uh, you know, it's not going to show up uh, in a very obvious manner in the government's finances. You know, on the other side, you've got Jagmeet Singh, who's in a bit of a, a difficult position because, uh, you know, he's aware that he'll get blamed if things get cut or chopped. And so, you know, he's again trying to make the case that, uh, you know, these savings must be found in, in a way that doesn't actually have an impact on on what uh, the government does. So in a way, neither opposition leader has a lot of uh, leeway in it because they may pay it, uh, you know, they either agree with what the government's doing or uh, are supporting the government but disagreeing with it. So, you know, I suspect uh, this will have a bit of legs, but uh, for, the, for the Trudeau uh, government, that's maybe why they've, you know, emphasized this. But it's hard to see with the amounts involved, Canadians getting particularly excited about it. But again, it maybe is an indication that the Liberals are aware that if they wish to win the next election, they have to actually win back some votes from Conservatives rather than simply trying to, to steamroll the NDP and, and take their votes. Professor Grave, thank you for giving uh, some insightful takeaways for our audience this morning. Enjoy the day and enjoy the weekend. And you too. Peter Grave, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University, breaking down these uh, impending spending cuts by the federal Liberals. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hey, opening day at the CNE today. Yeah, let's all go to the X. The 144th Canadian National Exhibition is going to officially open And uh, it's an exciting time. We talked to producer Liz yesterday. It was a part of Media Day and got to sample some of the wild food offerings. Took in the big super wheel and had a lot of fun in what was a glorious weather day. And, well, today the weather's not going to be that bad. It'll be a little cool, but uh, the weekend is looking fantastic. And, uh, well, it's always a great time at the X. And here to talk about what is going on is the CEO of the CNE, Daryl Brown. Daryl, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? Hey, thank you. How you doing? I'm good. This must feel like Christmas Eve for you. <laughs> you know, it's it's so intense with the lead up. Everybody's probably just taking a big collective sigh as we get ready to go. With everything, COVID really was a gut punch. How has the CNE come through post pandemic? Uh, you know, I don't think I could write a script better than how it's turned out. Uh, obviously, we were um, in dire straits you know, after the two years being down. And we really needed a bit of government help going into 2022. But 
media really stepped up last year in in covering us and the public came out in droves we had you know 1.56 million people come out they spent a lot of money um on site and you know we got enigma to look at what the economic impact of that was and uh yeah, they came up with numbers that were pretty astounding 142.2 million to the economic impact of the province 112.2 to the gta we had 45% of the people coming from outside of the GTA and, and spending around $109 million. And it uh, it left us in a good place and, and really allowed us to plan this year without having to worry about finances. So what is the expectation this year in terms of the financials? Because we know the cost of living is high, but we're also one year uh, uh, removed from the pandemic where people are just more free to, to do the things that they're, they've normally done. What What is the expectation this year? Yeah, well, you know, we we were obviously, you know, wondering what the effect was going to be of inflation and and, uh, thought there might be a little bit of a downside to that. But, you know, all indications going into today were that people were as hyped or even more hyped than last year. We were looking at uh, 60% higher advanced ticket sales than last year uh, coming into today. And so if that keeps up, it's telling us that we're probably going to have uh, at least as many people out as last year. Well, that is awesome. Daryl Brown is the CEO of the CNE. The 144th Canadian National Exhibition officially kicks off today and uh, lots of fun down by the waterfront in Toronto. Uh, of course, one of the highlights is the wacky food. There's now a new super wheel, a giant Ferris wheel at the X and the Pink Floyd exhibit. Of those three, what do you think people are most looking forward to trying out? Well, you know, I think part of it depends on 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 the day and what's happening outside. Because if it's if it's scorching, you're going to want to get inside and cool off <laughs> for, for one thing, or or well, I guess it, it works both ways because that wheel is it has air conditioned cabins and gives you a fantastic view. But it's only, you're only going to be on there for ten, eleven minutes. Uh, the the Pink Floyd exhibition's astounding. I mean, it uh, look at it, it cost about $6 million to put it together. Um, it was at Victoria and Albert in London to begin with. Uh, 350,000 people went through it in London, and it's been around the world. And I haven't met a person coming out of that exhibition that hasn't really been um, astounded by what's there. Uh, you know, 350-plus artifacts. Uh, and, you know, Pink Floyd touched on seven decades and just mapping it chronologically through and, and hearing input from the various people that played roles at different times. It's really quite interesting. So much more that is going to be happening at the X, and it all starts today. I encourage our listeners to go online to thex.com, get your tickets. You can also get them at the X. Uh, Daryl, uh, congrats on what is going to be another fantastic X, and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, what you guys are up to uh, in the years to come. Congrats and uh, good luck this year. Hey, thank you. Hope to see you down here. You got it. That is uh, Daryl Brown, CEO of the CNE. And they're, uh, of course, going to have a lot of fun starting today and up to and including Labor Day. Coming up after the news, COVID-19. Yeah, it's still around. And apparently, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada, 
It's actually increasing. We'll talk about that next year on GMH on 900 CHML. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and and review.